evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. If you're in the back, come on down and grab a seat. I want to welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. My name is Deepu Gowda. Uh, I'm a general internist here at Columbia, and I direct the clinical skills course for the first one and a half years. Um, our Narrative Medicine Rounds always happen on the first Wednesday of the month, and we have two left this semester, this and the one in June. just wanted to let you know that June 1st, Elizabeth Rosenthal will be joining us. She is a New York Times reporter, and she's written a couple series in the New York Times that are very powerful and about healthcare, one titled Paying Till It Hurts, and the other When the Hospital Fires the Bullet. Um, and we invite you to come back on June 1st, uh, between 5 and 7, to join us for that. Um, so I'd like to, uh, to welcome Craig Irvine up to introduce our uh, very esteemed speaker this evening. Craig Irvine um, is a philosopher, um, and he educates really the narrative medicine community and the medical school on issues of philosophy and how they really, how we think about uh, interpersonal relationships and intersubjectivity. Um, and he works with our master's students as well. He's the academic director of the Narrative Medicine Master's Program and the director of education for the program in Narrative Medicine. Craig. Thank you, Deepu. Well, it is my distinct honor to introduce Professor George Yancey today. George Yancey is professor of philosophy at Emory University, holds a PhD in philosophy from Duquesne, an MA in philosophy from Yale, and an MA in Africana studies from NYU. Professor Yancey works in the areas of critical philosophy of race, critical whiteness studies, and philosophy of the black experience, with particular interest in the formation of African-American philosophical thought as articulated within the social and historical space of anti-black racism, African-American agency, and questions of identity formation. His current work focuses on the theme of racial embodiment, particularly in terms of how white bodies live their whiteness unreflectively in relationship to the deformation of the black body and other bodies of color. He has authored, co-edited, or edited 17 books uh, and over 100 articles and chapters, which have been quoted worldwide. He's known for his powerful and very influential conversations with philosophers of race at The Stone, which is uh, in the New York Times, philosophers who have included, among many others, Cornel West, Judith Butler, Bell Hooks, uh, Anthony Appiah, who many of you might remember, was a speaker here in 2013. The list, I think, really speaks to his own stature and the respect he commands among his fellow thinkers. In his review of Professor Yancey's trailblazing 2010 book, Black Bodies, White Gazes, a book that has become one of the core works studied in our Narrative Masters program, Cornell West wrote, quote, this courageous and brilliant book is the most philosophically sophisticated treatment we have of the most visceral issue in America and modernity, the black body within the changing context of whiteness. Don't miss it. I sincerely hope none of you will. About Professor Yancey's 2012 book, Look a White, white anti-racism activist Tim Weiss wrote, quote, many scholars explore the destructive tendencies of white supremacy, but few do so with the verbal alacrity, philosophical depth, and stylistic grace of George Yancey. Yancey not only names the sickness 
He forces the infected to name it too. He has given white folks' problem back to us. I, for one, am grateful. I want to echo Tim Wise's expression of gratitude. In introducing Professor Yancey, I cannot help but speak very personally because his work has affected me in a deeply personal manner, and I hope you'll understand that the best way I can convey the power of his work is to speak personally. No author has done more to help me, to help my students see the unseen of whiteness. In December of last year, Professor Yancey published a letter, Dear White America, in the New York Times. I am white America, so this letter was addressed to me. In the opening of his letter, Professor Yancey tells me that he has a weighty request. As you read this, he asks, quote, I want you to listen with love, a sort of love that demands that you look at parts of yourself that might cause pain and terror. I don't mean the Hollywood type of love, but the scary kind, the kind that risks not being reciprocated, the kind that refuses to flee in the face of danger. Look deep. Look into your soul with silence. Quiet that voice that will speak to you of your white innocence. There are times when you must quiet your own voice to hear from or about those who suffer in ways that you do not. I am white. I am racist. And as hard as that is to say, I couldn't feel more grateful to Professor Yancey for showing the courage, a word that's often used for his work, the courage necessary to give me this gift, to teach me that as long as I continue to live the privileges of my unnamed, unreflected whiteness, I perpetuate violence against black lives. I may not do this intentionally, I may not put on a white robe and dance around a burning cross, but I live and enjoy and perpetuate white privilege. It's not enough, of course, to have learned this. A central theme of Professor Yancey's work is that challenging racism is not just or even primarily a work of cognition. Racism is somatic, performed in the body's racialized habits of being. To enact change, therefore, is a lifelong task that requires constant vigilant attention to my embodied being in the world. I am very happy now to be able to thank Professor Yancey publicly for this very great gift. Wow, so with that introduction, I feel a little superfluous, but I'm here, wonderful, wonderful introduction. Uh, so I'd like to thank the program in narrative medicine and college uh, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University and the program's executive director, Dr. Rita, uh, Rita Sharon. I would also like to thank Craig uh, Irvine, um, uh, who is director of education uh, at the program in narrative medicine and who has used my work, as he just stated, in, in, his, in his courses, uh, which has been absolutely amazing. Uh, and last but not least, I would like to thank uh, Deepu, uh, for playing the role, uh, the important role of moderator uh, for this evening. So let's begin. Uh, a couple things. That, so there's only one philosopher, or two philosophers in here. Are there any other philosophers? So there are two. 
So, I mean, every field has its own lexicon, so if you hear a term that I use, jot it down and force me to define it, right, at some point during, uh, during Q&A. Uh, and also, I'd like to um, just say that I, my, my, I tend to be very frank. It's called paresia. I'll say something about that in a minute. Um, so I just want to warn you that, uh, I mean, I can't, like, point out a lot of triggers. I'm not going to do all that stuff, right? But the language tends to be a little frontal and abrasive. So I, I, I just apologize in advance, but I can't imagine any other way of doing these pre presentations if we're going to talk seriously about race uh, and racism in America, so in North America. So, so here we go. Uh, okay. I argue that paresia, and that's P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A, -R -R -E it's a Greek term, or fearless or courageous speech is so important when discussing issues regarding race and racism. But along with fearless speech, we need fearless or courageous listening which I see as an openness to have one's assumptions shattered, one's sense of self-fissured, to have one's sense of ethical certainty called into question, to have one's self touched to the point of vertigo and perhaps even crisis. Part of courageous speech in philosophy uh, is to be a troublemaker, a contemporary gadfly. Being a troublemaker involves risk. As for academics, by troublemaker, I don't mean being uh, clever or showing us how good you are at refuting the, the arguments of your colleagues. More is at stake. Bell Hooks says that she came to theory because she was hurting, because she was in pain. How many of us here in this room come to education because we are hurting, because we are in pain, because we suffer? I know about the risk and the failure of others to listen courageously. For an example, I published a piece on Trayvon Martin in the New York Times in a section called The Stone. The article generated over 600 comments. One of them read, quote, your stock in trade is white guilt. Your vision of justice is payback. Whitey is the cause of all your problems. You peddle your racial hatred. That makes you a racist. The very evil you accuse me of. I read your screed on a summer's eve. You write like one. There is a special place in hell for those that lead others astray. Say hi to Teddy Kennedy and Hitler when you get there. End quote. <laughs> Some of you may know, as was just stated, some of you may know that I also wrote a very controversial article called uh, Dear White America, which generated over 2,000 comments in the stone, uh, New York Times. For that piece, I received tons of hate mail in my university inbox, voicemail, and even snail mail. So people like wrote out the entire letter, put, an, um, put a stamp on it just to call me nigger. Just to call me nigger, but anyway. Uh, police presence was necessary during my public talks. Uh, a petition was sent out uh, in my support. The APA, the American Philosophical Association, issued a historic statement on my behalf. White supremacist websites dis discussed the piece, uh, and I was invited to appear on Fox News and other social media, social, uh, social media outlets, all of which I decided to decline. Uh, in Dear White America, I wrote what I saw as a gift, but this is some of what I received as a response to that gift voice message, and I couldn't put all of these. It's going to become a book, but I couldn't write. There's just too many of them, hundreds and hundreds of comments. So voice message, quote, Dear nigger professor, you are a fucking racist. Now here's the Parisia, right? You are a piece of shit destroying the youth of this country. You are neither African nor American. You are pure 100% nigger. You would never marry outside of your nigger race. That's a fact. You're a fucking smug nigger. You are, an, you, are you are uneducated with education. 
You are a fucking animal, just like all black people in the United States of America, including that nigger Kenyan that was born in fucking Kenya that has usurped the White House. Yes, it is called the White House for a reason, because white people made this country great. You fucking nigger. End quote. Uh, inbox message. Quote, Professor Yancey, all of your studies have forced me to examine my self-image and my white racist mind. You clearly state that no matter what I think, I'm a racist. Okay, cool. Thank you for clearing, clearing that up for me. Now I'm forced to say, because you tell me I can say nothing else, fuck you nigger. As always, the white guy. End quote. White supremacist website. Quote, Cunts like this aren't philosophers. They just hate white people. Simple. He should fuck off to Africa if he doesn't like living in a white country. End quote. My sense is that these individuals failed or refused to be vulnerable, failed to be what I call unsutured, given the, the medical space we're in. That'll be an interesting concept to develop, but failed to be unsutured, failed to tarry, failed to linger, failed to be in crisis, failed to allow my invocation to speak to function as a site of solicitation or form of troubling. They failed to, to listen courageously. Franz Fanon, author of Black Skin, White Masks, says, quote, I want my voice to be harsh. I don't want it to be beautiful. I don't want it to be pure, end quote. So if you're here seeking purity, I'm not the one. I don't want us to be seduced by hope, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but I'm saying to you, I don't want you to leave here with hope. That's too easy. We need something far more dangerous, something far more disconcerting, unnerving, unnerving, alarming, traumatic, and perhaps a bit haunting etymologically to frequent. It seems to me that what I'm suggesting here is compatible with Parisia. So in this talk, I challenge what I see as a certain species of purity in academic discourse and narration. I want the words to do something other than intellectually enlighten but to affectively disturb you. So I'd like for you to listen to this narrative that I'm giving and to see or to think about the ways in which the narrative that you tell about yourself is shifted within this short period. When it comes to discussing issues regarding race and racism within contexts like this one, we mustn't be like Odysseus who dared to be adventurous and yet remain safe. We must allow the sirens to sing to us without the safety of a mast, without plugging up our ears with wax. When it comes to intimate and courageous discussions regarding race, how it is lived and how it is experienced and how it is avoided, we ought to allow for the strength of the aleatoric, the unpredictable spaces of openness to fracture calcified norms and unproductive sedimented practices. We must be daring. We must be vulnerable, which means that we must be open to be wounded. We must be open to be touched. Indeed, we must be open to die, to die to our stubbornness, to die to our denials, to die to our innocence, to die to our epistemological ignorance, to die to our arrogance, to die to our narcissism, to die to our procrastinating assumptions, to die to our fears, to die to our color evasion, to die to our denials, to die to our self-righteousness, to die to our philosophical purity, to die, to die to our illusions of safety, to die to all of those tricks that we play and those narratives that we tell ourselves to convince ourselves that we are fine, that we are the good ones, that we are the sophisticated ones. Part of what fuels courageous speech, or so I would argue, is also linked to our finitude, our knowledge that we can't stay here forever, that someday all of this will be gone, at least for me and for you. Yet there is something that can be gotten from this sense of finitude. It is that absolute sense of urgency. 
So I have a small task. I want you to look at each other. Not really need to look at each other. <laughs> Just look at each other. Okay, that's good. Stop looking. Okay. So having looked at each other, keep in mind, keep in mind, that 100 years from now, we can be pretty sure that none of us in this room will be alive. So bracket out your faith, whatever your faith claims are, we will be gone, perhaps never to appear again. So it seems to me that what we do between birth and the grave is so incredibly vital, because at some point, as philosopher Cornell West is fond of saying, quote, we will be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. <laughs> West sees this as a very funky place. He calls it a funky place. Just as our being born between urine and feces is also a very funky place. Are, are there any C-section people in here? There's one? There's one? Okay, so you missed out on the funk there. Just, just fine. This moment of looking at each other is something that I remind my students to do in class. I do it partly because students don't look at each other, not really. They're generally facing the front, facing me. But I want them to feel their finitude and to see the face of the other, in this case their fellow classmates, and to see in that face the overpowering inevitability of death, to feel the reality that this face might be gone perhaps even forever. This exercise is not about nihilism. It's not about playing jokingly with our human condition, but it's about creating in my students, in us, a sense of shared vulnerability and thereby a shared sense of commonality. My aim is to give them a sense that we are in this existential journey together, inseparable, white students. My white students are always reminding me that they are not racists. We've made progress, they say. We, we're not like our parents and grandparents. We live in a post-racial society in which you can be whatever you want to be, if only you try hard enough. We never own black people. We don't use the N-word. We have plenty of black friends. We love rap music. And we date black and Latinos and Asians. So when it comes to race and racism, most, if not all, of my white students claim to know about the absence of their own racism. They are certain that they are not racists. They are, in short, at peace with who they are. Yet, I would argue that they are at peace within the context of precisely perpetuating racism. What if at the end of the day, to be white is to be racist? So I'll repeat that. What if at the end of the day, or at the end of this talk, to be white is to be racist? As the so-called good whites, they believe, my students, that they are already positioned beyond the muck and mire of contemporary forms of white racism, white privilege and white power. Indeed, there are many of my white students who give the impression that they were born from the head of a god, like Athena from the head of Zeus, fully mature and unscathed by the reality of white racism. The challenge. I challenge the same white students to, to, to keep a journal of examples of white racism that they have encountered at home, at school, or just within the context of everyday conversations. By the way, I take this from the sociologist Joe Fegan, who has his students write uh, these, these journals, what's called backstage racism. Many of them were pretty sure that their journals would be sparse, perhaps even empty. Toward the end of the semester, all of my white students were deeply shocked. In fact, by the end of the semester, they had to question their sense of certainty regarding the non-existence of their own white racism. Some came away deeply troubled by the awareness that white racism is front and center within their families, social groups, and within their dorms. So here are five of those recent, recent entries. First white student, quote, the first day back from spring break, we had a new student move in. When my other floor mates came and noticed this, one ran down the hallway, possibly inebriated, screaming, there's a nigger on the floor now, guys. Watch your stuff, end quote. 
My question is, if you're black, have you ever been looked upon suspiciously as, as if you were a thief, a criminal, as you were minding your own business? Second white student, quote, one white guy told me his secret thoughts while he was boxing. He said that he always imagined his white girlfriend being banged by some really big black guy, and that this makes him so pissed that he could go all out in boxing, end quote. My question is, if you're a black male, what is about banging a white girl that puts white guys in a state of frenzy? Dare I say it? Does it have something to do with fear of the big black dick? Third white student, quote, when I was on the elevator, I realized as a black man and white and black woman were walking onto the elevator with me, I was clutching my bag close to my body uh, and moved it to the shoulder away from them. I had no reason to clutch my bag other than the fact that they were black, end quote. My question is, if you're black, have you had, ever had this experience where white people clutch their bags when they see you approaching? Fourth white student, quote, I went to get my nails done with one of my friends, and while we were picking out our nail polish colors, I asked her what she thought of a dark purple. Jokingly, she said that that dark of a nail polish would make my nails look like nigger nails, end quote. My question is, if there exist nigger nails, then what about nigger teeth? or nigger breath, nigger sweat, nigger hair, nigger feet, nigger food, nigger sex, nigger moms, nigger dads, nigger babies, nigger churches, nigger clothes, nigger love, nigger music, nigger lips, nigger talk, nigger walk, nigger jokes, no good niggers, nigger scent, nigger this, nigger that, nigger politicians, and dare I say, our nigger president. Fifth and last white student, quote, one white girl was talking about why she could not date a black guy, and she mentioned the black hands she said, when they turn over their hand, that is really gross. They look like gorilla hands, end quote. My question is, why are black people still depicted as monkeys in the 21st century? Clicking sounds. White filmmaker Amy Sands tells the story of how she and her sister would travel from Westchester County to New York City with their grandparents. She says that when they reached black neighborhoods, the windows in her grandparents' car would close and the doors would lock, quote, until black faces appear on the street, then the sleek electric windows slid up and sucked closed. The automatic locks click down. The dark people are sealed out. We are sealed in, end quote. I know about those clicking sounds. The clicking sounds are always already accompanied by white nervous gestures and eyes that want to look but are hesitant to do so. The clicks ensure their safety, effectively re-signifying their white bodies as in need of protection vis-a-vis -vis the site of danger, death, doom and blackness. In fact, the clicks begin to return me to myself as this dangerous beast, a phantom, rendering my body the site of microtomy and volatility. The clicks attempt to seal my identity as a dark savage. The clicking sounds mark me. They reinscribe me, rematerializing my presence, as it were, in ways that I know to be untrue, in ways that I know are not me. Unable to stop the clicking, unable to stop white women from tightening the hold of their purses as I walk by, unable to stop white women from crossing to the other side of the street once they have seen me walking in their direction, unable to stop white men from looking several times over their shoulders as I walk behind them minding my own business, unable to establish a form of recognition that creates a space of trust or liminality. Unable to stop such forms of bodily malediction felt by me, there are times when I want to become their fantasy, to become their specter, their problem. In the, in the case of the cliques, I want to pull open the car door and shout, surprise, you've just been carjacked by a ghost, a fantasy of your own creation. Now get the hell out of the car. 
But of course, this act of agency, this act of protest, would simply reinforce the white perception of me as a problem. But what if the clicking sounds could speak? What would they communicate to me? What would they say? Perhaps something like this. Click, nigger. Click, nigger. Click, nigger. The clicking sounds would begin to fragment my existence, cut away at my integrity, depicting me in the form of an essence, a solid type. Click, thug. Click, thief. Click, criminal. Click, danger. Click, hypersexual. Click, predator. Click, violent. Click, wild. Click, primitive. Click, angry. Click, savage. Click, rapist. Click, evil. Click, demon. Click, Hulk Hogan. I am on the receiving side of the clicks. And yet, those whites in their cars, through the sheer act of locking their car doors, perform their white identities as in need of safety, as in need of protection. The clicks signify multiple layers of their identity. Click white, click, click white, white. Click pure, click innocent, click good, click law-abiding, click vulnerable, click decent, click threatened, click prey, click better than, click epistemically credible, click civilized, click persons as such, click humans as such. Yet, I want to ask the question, how does it feel to be a white problem? Rethinking the term nigger through the process of reversal, black literary figure James Baldwin asks, quote, but if I am not the nigger, and if it is true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger, end quote? Baldwin goes on to say, quote, I give you your problem back. You're the nigger baby. It isn't me, end quote. Yet, yet, as long as whites see themselves as normative, or what I call whiteness as the transcendental norm, which we can talk about, or even cited as normative, and I am different qua nigger or qua problem, the narrative discourse about my personhood will function as a cover, a farce, a mere empty gesture. Baldwin's point forces us to ask, will the real nigger please stand up? And if one stands, then how does one sustain the weight of that truth? How does one tarry with that truth? Not only are the bodies that initiate the cliques performing their white identities through the cliques, but the cliques themselves ins install white identities interpolate, that's a fancy word we can come back to, or hail white identities, solidify white identities. The cliques are not isolated, pure auditory data, but markers of social meaning, signifiers of regulated space, forms of disciplining bodies, and part of a racial and racist web of significance that bespeaks the sedimentation of racist history and racist iteration. Du Bois argues that for those blacks who have given thought to the situation of black people in America, they will often ask themselves, what after all am I? Through an uneventful, mundane act of white index fingers locking their car doors, click, click, the color line is drawn. After so many clicks, on so many occasions, I am stalled as a stranger, as it were, to myself, forcing a peculiar question, where is my body? And I'm hoping that the women in the audience might be able to identify with that kind of question in relationship to male power and the male gaze. The question itself makes sense once the body is theorized not as a brute race extensa, which comes from Descartes, but as a site of confluent norms, as that whose meaning is a function of a complex interpretive and perceptual framework. I am not a criminal, a problem, waiting to attack white people, hence their sense of safety is a fabrication, it's a lie. They have created a false dichotomy, and outside, the blacks, as opposed to the inside, the whites. But what if that inside, what if that feeling of safety, that fabricated space, is a construction that is parasitic upon the false construction of the black body as dangerous? If so, then their sense of themselves as safe is purchased at the expense of the possibility for a greater, more robust sense of human community or mitzayim. 
They have cut themselves off from the very possibility of fellowship, of expanding their identities, of reaping the rewards of being touched by the black other, and thereby shaking the apparent boundaries between their white selves. To live a life predicated upon a lie often requires more lies to cover it over. Black bodies then function to conceal the truth that so many whites lead lives that are constructed around a profound distortion and deception. Namely, white people need protecting from black people. The need for this lie bespeaks a white self that is on the very precipice of ontological evisceration. I'd like to say more about that at some point. Race as lived. My sense is that it is at the level of the lived density of race that so much more work needs to be done. It is at this level where the funkiness of race, racism, resides. Indeed, I have known whites who are staunchly against the claim that the concept of race cuts at the joints of reality. Yet, how they live race, how they live their own racism, is unmistakable. I was once being interviewed by a white philosopher for a job opening where the department was looking for someone whose areas of specialization was philosophy of race and African-American philosophy. I met with this one white male faculty member for an hour. My assumption was that we would spend time talking about what I would teach, what I desire to teach my curriculum vitae, and so on. However, he spent the bulk of the time talking about his anti-racism. He also provided a personal narrative incident that was intended to demonstrate this. As I recall, there were no questions about my pedagogy or my relatively extensive publication record. Here was a white philosopher who no doubt, if asked the question, would have said that the concept of race was scientifically meaningless and that no empirical referent in the natural world and that there is no empirical referent in the actual world called race. Hence, race is a social constructional category. Yet he felt the need to self-present as pure, as someone who was a good white, who was above the fray of racism and lived beyond the trappings of race matters. He used my presence, my hour, as a space for self-confession and self-glorification. There he was, fully visible, entrails revealed, desiring that I spend my time bearing witness to his white purity so that I could state emphatically and unequivocally that he was one of the good ones. Yet he doth self-praise too much. It was as if he was preparing me for those real white racist others, you know, the bad ones. I was unmoved by the implied dichotomy. He needed my approval and admiration. My black body, my presence, functioned redemptively. In retrospect, I see with greater clarity. This was a situation that must be named. What white narcissism, what white hubris, look a white. Here was a case where my presence, my voice, my interior complexity had taken a backseat to his white narcissism. I was neither heard nor in some sense was I hearable. The fact is that whiteness as race continues to exist within the socially and existentially lived space of our everyday experiences, including within this space right now. The reality of race then, though not a natural kind, is purchased within the framework of what might be called a social ontology that recognizes the very serious persistence and implications of race beyond what might be called its ontological or ontic vacuity. My work theorizes and understands black embodiment within the context of white everyday power or hegemony. Some have argued that I have managed to sort of telescope and bring the body within Africana philosophy in a very unique way. Within this context, the power of the white gaze, which is, which is a structured way of seeing, is always already mediated by certain norms and values. It interpolated, then the, the French would be an interpolation, the black body as that which is epistemologically and ontologically given. This is a situation that involves the collapse of ontology and epistemology into each other without much slippage. What is it then, so rather what it, the black body, is and how it is known 
is constructed through bodily gazes, bodily gestures, visual images, various representations and discursive practices and narrative practices that have overdetermined its being and constructed it as a denigrated thing. Thing. The use of thing here is more than a tropological reference. For an example, think of the philosopher Hegel. Who's heard of Hegel? Just by a show of hands. Okay. Think of the philosopher Hegel, who thought that black people did not possess what he called geist or spirit. Hegel says, quote, nothing consonant with humanity is to be found in his, the blacks, or the Negro's character, end quote. For Hegel, the Negro is an animal man, bless you, sensuous and without subjectivity, self-consciousness and the capacity of representation. Bless you again, and I'll just keep that forward. Um, <laughs> this is the way that the Negro is unable to represent, uh, in an abstract sense, the human flesh, uh, that human flesh is a body and is capable of psychological associations and not simply an object of the senses, something to be eaten. Or think of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who's heard of Kant. Good. Who held that to be black from head to toe is clear proof that what one says is stupid. So Immanuel Kant was, being, was, was, um, uh, was, was talking to a, a guy named Father Labatt, who was telling him a story that a black man had told him, which was really a sexist thing to say. I'll, I'll tell you the story later if you want to hear it. But anyway, Kant says, tell me the story. He told him the story. And then Kant says, you know, he learns that this guy was black from head to toe. And he says there would have been something to that story had he not been black from head to toe. So imagine a curtain that covers me up. Kant's in the audience. He hears something and he says, my God, that's brilliant, right? You lift the curtain. He says, oh, shit. Black from head to toe. Got to take it back. It's stupid. Right? And keep in mind that this is the same Immanuel Kant who wrote, the brilliant Kant who wrote the three critiques. It was the same Immanuel Kant who believed that all black babies are born white, with the exception of a little ring, black ring around their navels and their genitalia, which has really deep implications there. He's also the same Kant who never left Königsberg, so go figure. <laughs> but in short, the black body has endured a process of both inscription and description, both terms intimately linked. Now, I have so many contemporary examples that I'm going to just go back a bit. Or think of the lynched black body, a problem in need of discipline. And think here of the problem of overkill. For an example, in 1934, 23-year-old Claude Neal was accused of killing a white woman. And it is said that a confession was wrung out of him, meaning that it was forced, twisted, or strained out of him. So a group of white guys pulled Neal out of his cell. He was dragged out. He was first castrated. So they cut off his penis, and then they stuffed it into his mouth. And while it was in his mouth, he was forced to say that he liked it after which they cut off his testicles. Those, too, were stuffed into his mouth, and he was forced to say that he liked those. Occasionally, they would cut off a finger, cut off a toe. Uh, they would tie the noose around his neck so tightly that he would lose consciousness. They would loosen it up, and they would begin the torturing all over again. His sides were sliced, so they would slice his side and pull it down, still alive. Um, he was said to have been uh, burned with hot, hot irons, from head to toe. Uh, he was eventually killed. Uh, some reports said that he had 18 bullet holes in his head, chest, and abdomen. Pictures were sold of his mutilated body, and other body parts were kept as prized possessions. And he was dragged to a nearby town where 7,000 whites waited to get a stab at this body. Even little white children would stand with sharpened sticks to stab at the body. But just keep in mind that this is all about the spectacle of lynching, which was a site of the erotic a site of uh, a spectacle, the site of the erotic, and the site of consumerism. So it wasn't unusual for white people to lynch black people on Sundays of all days and write postcards home to their relatives saying that you missed the barbecue. 
Or think of 21-year-old black female Mary Turner. We don't hear many of these cases, but this is a special case, who was eight months pregnant. She identified those white men who lynched her innocent husband. Having done so, this was the mistake, the whites tied her up by her ankles, they doused her body with motor oil and gasoline, and they set her body alight. Right? At which point, a white man walked over with a big knife, cut into her abdomen, the baby falls out, hits the ground once, and it's said that it makes one, one cry, at which point he walks over with his boot and crushes its skull to the ground. And it's said that hundreds and hundreds of bullet holes were in her body. Or think about the rape of enslaved black women's bodies that were said to be always already sexually available, indeed hypersexual essences, things, and thereby could not be raped. If you always want to be fucked, you can't be raped. Of course, this is the mythos, this is the narrative that's told about black women's bodies. Such black bodies are what I would call the other of the second sex, for those who know Simone de Beauvoir's work, were metaphorically open, always daring to be taken, or desiring to be taken. Black women's bodies might be said to be holes without bottoms, or perhaps just bottoms with holes. Black women's bodies, in short, were problem bodies. And if 1934 is too remote to engender a sense of the gravity of the problem of how black people are treated, think of 1999 in New York City, where black male Amadou Diallo, a thing like essence, always already on the brink of violence, was shot at 41 times by white police officers and hit with 19 bullets as he reached for his and grabbed for his, and I think you guys know, his, his wallet. So what is it about a black male who does this, pulls out something called a wallet that somehow mysteriously becomes a gun? Or think of black male Abner Louima in 1997, who was handcuffed by white police officers when a stick was pushed into his rectum so far by a white police officer that it damaged his stomach, at which point he shoves it into his mouth and runs around the police station saying something like, this is how you break a man in. So I'm interested in the homoerotic dimensions and just the, the salacious, deeply problematic uh, sexual implications. Or think of Susan Smith, the white woman who in 1994 drowned her, her children and blamed it on a black man. Or think of Charles Stewart, a white, a white man who in 1989 shot his pregnant wife in the head and shot himself in the abdomen and then blamed it on a black man. Or think of Bill Bennett, former Secretary of Education under Reagan, in his remark where he said, quote, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down, end quote. He then goes on to say how impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible this would be, but yet true. So while he clearly disagrees with the statistic that crime is down because abortion is up, for those who are keeping up with this text, Freakonomics, right, this was being discussed, he has no problem using the epistemic operator true vis-a-vis -vis the apparent necessary connection between aborting black babies and the decrease in the crime rate. Note that he says, I do know. In short, Bennett knows that it is true that the category of blacks who are still in the womb will necessarily commit crimes, and he knows this prior to their birth. Hence, in the name of a future that we cannot possibly predict, little Jamal, let us say, has already committed a crime. His body is always against the law, or already against the law, because Bennett knows it is true that if he is aborted, our crime rate will in fact go down. So here's a case where the black fetus is always already the very essence of criminality prior to its birth. This is not a case of three strikes and you're out, or even two strikes and you're out. Presumably, the narrative says that what is required for one to be out is simply to be black. 
At the moment of conception, then, black life is already out. So here's a, here's a case, rather, where to be, right? black ontology is the problem, and where the only solution is death. Keep in mind that the etymology of the word problem means to throw forward. Hence, a black fetus is already thrown in front of itself, functioning as an obstacle to its own emergence in the world. Or what about being a black philosopher within a country and within academic contexts where black intelligence is denied? Where, for example, I become an oxymoron, something blatantly foolish, as a black philosopher standing before you only mimicking speech. You guys have heard of David Hume? David Hume said of Negroes that they are parrots. Black people are parrots. We are tropical birds. This natural parroting capacity and other presumptive characteristics, according to Hume, would not be the case if nature had not made an original distinction between different breeds of men. Worse off than the poets critiqued by Plato, blacks even lack inspiration. In other words, black people, I, I can say things that are intelligent, but I don't know, or rather we don't know what it is that we say when we say it. So if I were to say, a man who has knowledge has knowledge of something, that is to say of something that exists. For what does not exist is nothing. Thus knowledge is infallible since it's logically impossible to be mistaken, whereas opinions can be mistaken because opinions have to do with what both is and is not. Or tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all of our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What does that mean? The hell if I know. <laughs> but it must be something good. Or think here of philosopher Cornell West, who was stopped by a white police officer who accused him of trafficking cocaine. He told him that he was a professor of religion, and the officer said, quote, yeah, and I'm the flying nun. Let's go nigger, end quote. And if you've seen the flying nun played by Sally Field, you know that it was a fantasy about a nun who could fly. On this score, the white police officer is saying of West that he, like the flying nun, is a mere fantasy. After all, how can a black body be a professor of religion or a philosopher? West might be said to be something fit for teratology, perhaps Frankenstein's monster, a monstrous problem. Given that the construction of the black body is linked to this historical, ideological construction of the white body, it is important to turn or return the gaze upon the con constitutional acts of white races in central consciousness. To theorize whiteness in terms of its self-conscious claims to supremacy, however, would leave untheorized the various ways in which whiteness expresses itself in very subtle and insidious ways. Unlike black bodies physically confiscated from Africa, black bodies are confiscated within social spaces of meaning construction and social spaces of transversal transaction that are buttressed by a racist value epistemic, laden episteme. It is a peculiar experience to have one's body confiscated without physically being placed in chains. And again, I'm thinking about women here. How are your bodies confiscated? How is the meaning of your bodies confiscated on a daily basis? The elevator scenario, an encounter in black and white. Well-dressed, I enter an elevator where a white woman waits to reach her floor. She sees my black body, though not the same one I have seen reflected back to me from the mirror on any number of occasions. She, occasions, she sees a black body, as Robert Gooding Williams might say, quote, supersaturated with meaning as they, black bodies, have been relentlessly subjected to negative characterization by newspapers, newscasters, popular film, television programming, public officials, policy pundits, and other uh, agents of representation, end quote. Her body language signifies, look, the black. 
On this score, though short of a performative locution, her body language functions as an insult. Over and above how my body is clothed, regardless of the fact that I wear a suit and tie, she sees a criminal. Indeed, she does not really see me. Rather, phenomenologically, she might be said to see a black, fleeting expanse, a peripherally glimpsed vague presence of something dark, forbidden, and dreadful. Despite, despite how I think about myself, how I am for myself, her perspective, her third-person account, seeps into my consciousness. I catch a glimpse of myself through her eyes just for that moment. I experience some form of double consciousness, but what I see does not shatter my identity or unglue my sense of moral decency. After all, from the perspective of white hegemony or power, hers is deemed the only real point of view. One might say that the white woman's consciousness of the meaning of my black body coincides with the meaning of my black body as such, and that from her perspective, there is no meaning that the black body possesses that is foreign to her, that is, a meaning that is capable of enlarging her field of consciousness or seeing. As Patricia Williams might say, quote, I occupy a space of the entirely judged, end quote. When the white woman sees me, the symbolic order of blackness as evil is collapsed. I am evil. My blackness is the stimulus that triggers her response. The Negro, as Fainan notes, is a phobogenic object, a stimulus to anxiety. Her gaze is, as <coughs> Judith Butler says, quote, not a simple seeing, an act of direct perception, but the racial production of the visible, the workings of racial constraints on what it means to see, end quote. There's an incredibly profound notion. As black, I am the looked at. As white, she is the bearer of the white look. But note that I have not given my consent to have my body transformed, to have it reshaped. It's kind of rhythmically consistent. And thrown back to me as something I am supposed to own. But then who is, right? So she clutches her purse, eagerly anticipating the arrival of her floor, knowing that this black predator will soon strike. As she clutches her purse, I'm reminded of the sounds of whites locking their car doors as they catch a glimpse of my black body as I walk by, click, click. She fears that a direct look might incite the, the anger of the black predator. She fakes a smile. By her smile, she hopes to elicit a spark of decency from me. But I don't return the smile. I fear that it might be interpreted as a gesture of sexual advance. After all, within the social space of the elevator, which has now become a hermeneutic transactional space within which all of my intended meanings get falsified, it is as if I am no longer in charge of what I mean or intend, as when women say no, it means yes. What she sees or hears is governed by a racist epistemology of certitude that places me under erasure. Her alleged literacy regarding the semiotics of my black body is actually an instance of profound illiteracy. Her gaze upon my black body might be said to function like a camera obscura. Her gaze consists of a racist, socio-epistemic aperture, as it were, through which the white light of truth casts an inverted and a distorted image. It is through her gaze that I become hypervigilant of my own embodied spatiality. On previous occasions, particularly when alone, I have moved my body within the elevator without any particular attention to the movement of my hands, my eyes, the position of my feet. On such occasions, my being in the space of the elevator is familiar. My bodily movement, my stance, are indicative of what it means to inhabit a space of familiarity. But now it is becoming hard to breathe. What if I shouted, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. What would she say? The movement away from the familiar is what is also affected vis-a-vis -vis the white woman's gaze. My movements become and remain stilted. I dare not move suddenly. The apparent racial neutrality of the space within the elevator, when I was standing alone, has become one filled with white normativity. 
I feel trapped. I no longer feel bodily expansiveness within the elevator, but constrained. I now begin to calculate, paying almost neurotic attention to the proximic positioning of my body, making sure that this black object, what now feels like an appendage, a weight, is not too close, not too tall, not too threatening. So I genuflect, but only slightly, a movement that feels like an act of worship. Notice that she need not speak a word to render my body captive. She need not scream, rape. She need not call me nigger. Indeed, it is not a necessary requirement that she hates me in order for her to script my body in the negative ways that she does. White America has seen to that. So, my purpose is given to me in advance. I am often reminded of my purpose, my inner racial teleology, that is, my problematic identity through popular culture. I sit in movie theaters, which is a bizarre experience, by the way, waiting for me to appear on screen, waiting to see my body appear before me. For example, in the movie White Chicks, 2004, I am the character Latrell Spencer, who reminds white women, he says, quote, you know what they say, when you go black, and you guys finish it. Yes, who said that? (laughs) Excellent. Instead, he says, you know what they say, when you go black, you're going to need a wheelchair. Drink that in. In this case, I have such a large dick that I'm capable of rendering white women immobile. In other words, I am the sadistic black male body in search of masochistic white female bodies. I also recently saw myself in the movie The Heartbreak Kid, 2007, where a white woman who plays white actor Ben Stiller's wife pleads with him while having sex. She shouts, quote, fuck me like a black guy, end quote. One, of course, feels sorry for Stiller's character as he really tries with pronounced gyrations to fuck her like a black guy. But he does so to no avail. After all, according to the racist logic, he is white. Sorry, guys. And in Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, 1999, I was the black man who entered a closet with a white woman who was blind. After having sex with her, not only does she miraculously gain sight, but she says, quote, you're black? I knew it, end quote. So here, the black male dick reveals its multiple talents. Not only is it capable of temporarily crippling white women and confining them to wheelchairs, while of course rendering extreme pleasure, but the black male dick is also capable of healing the blind. The white gaze has fixed me, like looking into Medusa's eyes. I've been made into stone, stiff, ever erect. It is as if Viagra runs naturally through my veins. In fact, I've become a phantasm, so fictive has the black body become that its very material presence has become superfluous. There are times when the black body is not even needed to trigger the right response. All that is needed is the imago, or the image. Fanon observed, quote, a white prostitute told me that in her early days, the mere thought of going to bed with a Negro brought on an orgasm, end quote. While actual black bodies suffered during the spectacle of lynchings, one wonders to what extent the black body as phantasmatic object was the fulcrum around which the spectacle was animated. What then am I to do? Within the elevator, this this racially saturated field of visibility, what am I to do? I have somehow become this predator stereotype from which it appears helpless to escape. The white woman thinks that her act of seeing me is an act of knowing what I am of knowing what I would do next. Like Trayvon Martin 
or Jordan Davis, Renisha McBride, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, Tamir Rice, and Sandra Bland, I arrive too early on the scene. I am already a problem to be reckoned with. How are we doing on time? Good? Okay. So I want to conclude, but before I conclude, I want to just, just um, sort of clarify this. So my argument is that um, what happens in the elevator is what I call M-crow, right? And M-crow is just M, let me just write it now as I'm thinking about it. Um, if we can get this pen to work. M-C-R-O. And M-crow is where it's M-mythos, uh, where mythos operates as a kind of a narrative within which whites can understand black bodies to make sense of them. C is codification, it stands for code, and it means blackness functions as a code, which establishes a certain predictability about white perception. R is ritualization, and ritualization is the process of, let's say, when I'm walking down the street, a white woman walks, or white people walk on the other side of the street, or tugs on her purse in the elevator, or in the case of Cornell West, when the white police officer says, yeah, and I'm the flying nun. Ritualization helps to confirm the quote-unquote truth of the black body is dangerous. And then O is ontologization. That's just a fancy word. It means ontology, which comes from the word ontos, which means being. It means that my being is thrown back to me as that which I am supposed to own, as that which is dangerous. And so my argument is that within the elevator, whiteness as the transcendental norm is operating, just as I argue that whiteness as transcendental norm is operating within this space. So what that means is that to be not white is to be raced, it's to be marked, is to be named. To be white is to go unmarked, unraced, unnamed, ex-nominated. So everybody knows what BET is. What is that? But what is wet? WET. No one says white entertainment television, right? So whiteness as the transcendental norm operates in that way. The white gaze is a lot of things, and I'll just tell you two. It's, well, three. It's hegemonic. It's also negrophobic, and it's Procrustean. Does anybody know where Procrustean comes from, by the way? It comes from Procrustes, right, who had a bed, a mythological figure? I, yes. <laughs> so if you were too short to fit into his bed, basically what he'd do is stretch you, right? Rather, he would lop off your limbs, thank you. If you were too, no, yes, if you were too long, uh, he would lop off your limbs. If you were too short, he would stretch you. Is that right? To fit into his bed. So hence, the white gaze as Procrustean. But the white gaze is also mythomaniacal. And I'll give you an interesting example of that. And it's happening on the elevator. Then I'll conclude. What if I were to write myself a letter that said, start like, sort of like, Dear Dr. Yancey, I love you so much. You look good. You smell good. Oh, my God. I just can't wait to get to you. Oh, my God. Sincerely, Dr. Yancey. Something's clearly wrong, right? And I address that to myself, run out to the post office, put it in, right? and then wait for it the next day to come with all the attendant experiences of, oh my God, it's coming, right? So when I get it, I open, I'm like, oh my God, he loves me, and he, oh my God. Well, something's wrong there, right? Well, this is the white gaze. Why do you think white people, or rather, why do you think black people ran away from plantations? I know it's an easy question, but give it a shot. Why did they run? Anybody? Thank you, yes. <laughs> well, white people couldn't understand that, right? Because pigs weren't fleeing, cows weren't fleeing. So they went to Dr. Samuel Cartwright, white doctor. And they said, look, black people are fleeing the plantation. What the hell's going on here, right? And Samuel Cartwright said, I think I've got it figured out. They suffer from a disease called drapetomania. And dra drapetomania is a disease 
of running away from plantations. And black people would also break things, right? They would engage in what are called micro-acts, right? Or infra-politics, infra which is sort of beneath the radar of white people. They'd break little tools and so on. And again, white slave masters went to Samuel Cartwright, asked the question. Samuel Cartwright said, I've got it. It's dysesthesia ethiopica, which is the disease of breaking shit, right? <laughs> and uh, what's interesting about this the example of dear, you know, dear Dr. Yancey, is that what happens is, in, in political theory, it might be called ideology, in, in existentialism, it might be called bad faith, in epistemology and political theory, epistemologic of ignorance, psychology, mythomania, that's why I'm defining it. And it's the idea of objectifying your own actions in such a way that you define that which is n social as that which is natural. But by defining it as natural, you remove all responsibility from its construction. So there's a distanciation that takes place. That's what I'm arguing that the white woman is doing. Conclusion. What am I to do within the racially charged space? What do I, how do I deproblematize my body within the elevator? Do I enact a disruptive counter-white racist performance? If so, what would this look like? I could always turn around and state contemptuously, frankly, I don't give a damn about you or your kind, your kind. But this would only confirm her fears of the mythical, raging, angry black male. That is, I'd be still a problem. I could also attempt to trigger a sense of shame. I could say something like, Miss, I assure you that I am not interested in your trashy possessions, and I especially have no desire to humiliate you through the act of violence or of, of rape, nor are my sexual desires outside of my control. In this case, I position my moral subjectivity in such a way that she relationally comes to take up the position of a particular kind of subject, one who feels shame. In other words, this shame is a constituted effect produced through the effective positioning of myself as a moral actor within this dyad. Then again, she could be thinking, you uppity nigger, just who do you think you're talking to? Then again, what if I have indeed positioned her to feel shame? What if she leaves the elevator feeling bad about what she did? And this is related to the idea of not leaving with hope. Feeling bad about her whiteness. But what happens when this feeling gets quickly transformed into a positive sense of self-discovery? What if she now takes that discovery to indicate a form of transcendence beyond all things racist? She becomes no longer concerned about black pain and suffering, or my pain and suffering, but her pain, her guilt, her need to feel good, pure, and ethical. In short, she fails to tarry, T-A-R-R-Y, with black pain and suffering, and she also fails to tarry with the complexity of her own whiteness. What appeared to be a movement toward undoing whiteness is reinscribed as a place for precisely doing whiteness. And what if the elevator broke down for six hours? Would this create a space for her death? Or perhaps her salvation? Or perhaps this is a distinction without a difference? What if she got to know me differently during those six hours? What if her perceptual practices began to crack, though slightly? Is this not a beginning of a bridge? Perhaps we need more experiences where the spaces that we inhabit break down like the elevator, spaces where we get to dwell near each other, where you, as white, get to see that you are the problem. How do we here within this space, in this room, experience breakdown, or do we? Perhaps in that brief period on the elevator along with me, she will become unsutured, or perhaps an aspiration to be unsutured, and recognize how we are both part of the same racialized social integument 
of North America. Perhaps she will recognize my being as precarious, which denotes dependency, a form of asking, an entreaty, a form of prayer, a supplication. So if what I am ontologically is not a problem, but a site of asking, then what is required is a response. Think of the unfolding of the potential of something profoundly beautiful and yet terrifying had George Zimmerman become unsutured vis-a-vis Trayvon Martin's body, a body that is an asking, will you help me? Will you take care of me as I walk in this unfamiliar space? Will you support me as I walk here with effortless grace? Can you see my black body as one that matters? Then again, what happens when the elevator starts up again? The white woman returns to a world in which white skin privilege is systemic, where her white identity continues to be complicit with white norms, where other whites come to live their own lives effortlessly when it comes to being white, a world in which they continue to find their way, where they continue to live lives predicated upon lies, where their racism continues to go unmarked, where I remain a problem through what Barbara Applebaum calls white ways of being. What if whites don't really know the extent of their own racism? What if they can't? What are the ethical implications of this? What if their racism is embedded within structures of racism that hold them prisoner or within psychologically opaque forms of racist constitution? What if there is no escape from white racism? What does this mean? What does it mean for me or perhaps for you? For the most part, white people are not in crisis vis-a-vis their whiteness. They are under constant therapeutic reprieve, assured that there is nothing problematic about whiteness, about their white selves. They believe that they are not racists. But I ask again, I ask again, but what if to be white in America is to be racist? And if to be black in America, to be a problem? We need a place where we get to dwell near and where white people get to be in crisis a fundamental turning point, a site of uncertainty, off-centeredness, and unsuturing, and within a space too close to hide, at least not for too long. In double conclusion, then, perhaps there is no place called white innocence vis-a-vis the black body as a problem. And if this is so, what are the deeper ethical implications for whiteness and what is required? Thank you. So there were a lot of terms thrown out, any clarifications, a lot of claims about white people being racist, which if I were you, I'd be pretty pissed off, but there you go, it's out there. So I think the, uh, the duration of that applause uh, signifies something about how important this conversation was, uh, or is, and I think this is the most uh, Parisia that this room has ever seen, <laughs> for sure. Um, is, is Chris Travis here, or Little Lord Chris Travis is here. So Chris and Laura are a couple of our first-year medical students. And I call them out because uh, I'm really proud of the work that they've been doing. Uh, They're first-year medical students recognizing that they're entering a curriculum and a culture that has a lot of implicit and unconscious biases and racial um, discrimination, really. Uh, You know, in, in, in their experience over their first year of medical school, they've recognize things like 
being in anatomy class and learning that the normal buccal mucosa or the, the lining of the inside of the mouth is pink and, and, and bright. And what about people who have malnourished skin? And also learning about the Apgar score, which is the score of a healthy baby upon delivery being pink, right? And what about babies who are babies of color? And so we, we brought this uh, to the attention of the, the, the curriculum committee that we work on, and uh, we're forming a task force with faculty and students, uh, trying to kind of lift the veil on uh, these kind of unconscious uh, uh, racism that occurs in our institution. And, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is I want to applaud Chris and his colleagues for doing this, uh, for their courage, but also to think about fearless communication. Um, and as a first-year medical student having kind of fearless communication, I wanted to ask you, what are the, the risks of fearless communication? And what are the costs of not having? Sure, well, the risks are responses to Dear White America. Right? Um, I mean, it's, and, and by Parisia, by the way, I mean, Foucault has talked about this term, Michel Foucault. Um, Socrates is known as the Parisiastes, right? The one who speaks this fearlessness. Dr. King, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, right? Ella Baker, all individuals who speak Parisia. And the idea, I, I, like, I like the meaning also, it says, we, we, you try to tell it all, right? To speak it all. Um, and the risk is, of course, is that one, uh, as one, as one individual had written on, after, after reading Dear White America, he or she had put the term, written the term nigger at the top of the computer and had written it all the way down about a thousand times. So it was something like nigger, 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 right? Just on and on and on. And there were more things, right? There were, there were you know, physical threats to my person, right? What someone, what they would do to me and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that, of course, so there's the danger of it. And my wife said to me not to read those messages, but I had to. Um, but I didn't anticipate the physiological impact of the term nigger, right? I mean, I thought, okay, nigger, 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 damn, nigger, nigger. nigger. And when, you're, when you're called a nigger over a thousand times, right, it begins to do something you didn't anticipate. So I didn't anticipate the, the sort of physiological somatic kind of illness that that would cause, which is quite ph phenomenal, right? Uh, and fascinating. So I think that... <laughs> That's what gets entailed, right? I mean, the Parisiastes, right? One speaks this courageous speech. One speaks with this fearlessness that I think touches individuals at a level that they don't want to see. I mean, it's what philosophy does through, you know, before, before Socrates, but typically people point to Socrates. But what we lose, of course, um, is to understand the ways in which whiteness and racism operate insidiously within our world, right? And therefore, we let a lot of people off the proverbial hook, right? I mean, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, I mean, uh, if you guys have read Peggy McIntosh, everybody reads her, but I've read her in ways that she probably doesn't want to be read, right? So she says at one point that in my class and earlier, earlier times in my life, I used to think about racism only in terms of uh, mean things said by a certain group against another group, but that there's a relationship of domination. She, she, also, she also adds that, right? But that, she says, that's how I used to think about racism, but never in terms of how my whiteness is uh, sort of uh, given to me or bestowed upon me, right? So my claim is that then what we have then, if we don't speak courageously about whiteness, is that we have this false distinction of white people in North America, white people in this space, right, at this school, 
who claim that they're not racists, right? And I think by implication, Peggy McIntosh is in essence saying that to be white is to be racist. And there was an interesting example that happened. Um, uh, so I gave this example where, uh, and Peggy McIntosh talks about this, where there's the privilege of, of a white person going into a store while I go into the store at the same time. The white security guard follows me and doesn't follow the white body. So a student of mine said, wait a minute, wait, that, that's all wrong, right? I'm, if I get to walk and shop, I'm not the racist, right? The one who followed you is the racist. But the problem with that is that both the white body that gets to shop is part of whiteness as the transcendental norm. It's the body that gets pegged or interpolated as the innocent body, as the ethical body, as the body that won't steal. My body, however, becomes the thief, the body that will steal. My body is the criminal body. My body is the wretched of the earth, the damned of the earth. But what happens is that there's a fundamental, fungible or exchangeable relationship between the body that gets to, to shop and the body that follows me. Because the body that gets to shop gets to move through the world, as Fanon says, lively through the world, which means to move with effortless grace. So it gets to do this, right? I mean, it gets to do that, right? Whereas its body does not trail behind itself, which is the language of Sarah Ahmed, if you guys have read her, whereas the black body doesn't trail behind itself. It's a complete frontality. There's a way in which my body becomes an object to myself as that body which is watched. So because, precisely because that body gets to walk and shop, giving no thought to the implications of my body or for my body, that shopping and that freedom is precisely predicated on the damnation and the unethical construction of my body. You see? So it's a parasitic relationship. So it's fungible. Other examples of this, right, we talk about implicit bias. There's a, a recent studies that have been done that show that when you, you guys, I know you've heard of it, uh, it's, it's where it's called neuronal mirroring, right, where they have one monkey looking at another monkey, and apparently while the, mon is the monkey's hooked up to an MRI machine, and while the monkey's looking at a monkey, let's say, climbing a tree, that monkey watching will, certain neurons will fire as if it were itself climbing the tree. So they're trying to think about ways in which monkeys can empathize with each other. Hook up white people to MRI machines, have them watch black folk, Conclusion is that it's as if white people are looking at a blank wall, right? There are other MRI studies have shown looking at white people to, to, to look at their, um, the, the amygdala, showing them images uh, at a millisecond, which is a thousandth of a second, black faces, white faces. They can't say what they saw, but apparently when they see a black face, see a black face, there's a hell of a lot of activity going on in the amygdala, relatively little or no activity going in the amygdala when they see the picture of the, the, white, uh, the white face, right? And when we have things like both wealthy and poor whites, 80% of both poor and, and wealthy whites uh, live in all white communities, right? Or when, it's, when we have the stats that less than 10% of whites have black friends, and you have situations where you ask a white person, do you have a black friend? They say, of course I do. What, what's his name? It's Malik. Do you know the last name? Well, not exactly, but we're friends. So what do you do? Well, we played basketball once, right? So in essence, not a friend, right? So it seems to me that not de, de jure um, segregated, but we are de facto segregated. So this idea of dwelling near that I used, etymologically is the word for what it means to be a neighbor. So it seems to me that, right, we can't even begin to engage in the question of parisia or fearless speech if we're not in the same space as bodies, 
in the same space, right? So the only way in which it seems to me that this could even happen, that whites can undergo what I'm calling crisis. When I say crisis, I really mean that, right? Generally, when someone's in crisis, we want to medicate them, right? You don't want to see someone in crisis, but I want to know what white crisis looks like. Is it in this room? I don't know, right? I guess we might have to ask people of color, right? So I think that what we lose then is a certain truth about whiteness, and we lose a certain freedom, at least with regard to my black body. My black body remains a prisoner, right, of whiteness as the transcendental norm, as whiteness as what I call the side of opacity. So my argument is that white people can't even know the depths of their own racism. So the claim is that there's an epistemological limit on the insights. And just a very quick example, then we move on. Uh, Tim Wise, uh, who is, uh, who's been studying whiteness and white privilege, um, at one point goes, uh, he goes onto an airplane, he passes by the cockpit, and he sees two African-American pilots, at which point he goes, uh, can these guys fly this plane, right? And then afterward he's saying, no matter what I knew to be the case, it didn't help me. So no matter what I knew to be the case, epistemologically, right? Um, there's a case of Lillian Smith. If you guys haven't read this text, you need to read it. Uh, it's called Killers of the Dream. Lillian Smith talks about growing up white. She and a colleague of hers decided to segregate a Jim Crow area. And what happens, she goes with a colleague. They sit down with black bodies. They begin to eat. And her friend begins to throw up. And she says, Lillian Smith, that her conscience was serene. So here's a case where the white woman knows the right thing to do politically. Right? She knows that she wants to transgress Jim Crowism, but her body says no. So here's a case where the embodiment itself right, becomes a site of racism, where her mind says, I want to do it, but the body says, I don't think so. So when we think about racism, we shouldn't just think about it in terms of ideological framework or an epistemological framework or a set of beliefs, but to think about the ways in which the body itself functions as a site of white racism. So... Let's go on. We can go from there. Yeah. Um, so you speak about um, the black body being thrown forward already yeah. as an obstacle um, before you're born. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say about the white mind being cast forward? Oh, good. So excellent. Great. Yes. If the black body is thrown forward, and I love that point etymologically, right? Because really, it's the idea that. Uh, the black body, my black body, is already a problem before I arrive. I mean, if you guys know phenomenology, they talk like this, right? So there's a way in which, um, we, before I get in the elevator, the white woman, I'm already in the elevator, is the argument, right? So if the white woman is in the elevator, I'm already there, in the form of the imago, or the image. So the way, there's a way in which I temporally precede my own physical embodiment and presence within the elevator. So I'm always too late, right? But yet I'm always too early paradoxically, right, to that space. And if that's the case, then in some sense, the problem of the Negro or the problem of the black is that he or she is the problem. So in some sense, I literally, as it were, I'm like an, a, an obstacle, like, you know, you trip over a rock, you go, oh, oh my God, there's a rock there, right? In some sense, I'm tripping over my own being because it's the externalized problem beyond which I can do nothing. So too, the white gaze then is thrown ahead of itself, right? This wonderful, beautiful example, I was talking about racism in uh, one student of mine in a graduate course on critical whiteness studies. And we're talking about racism, and uh, he began to do this. He was just sort of rocking his arms. And he had this little, he just, they just had a baby, he and his wife, I guess about three months. 
And he says, look, Dr. Yancey, I got your point about racism, whiteness. I'm getting it. I'm understanding. It's difficult, but I'm getting it. And he's, he's doing this, right? And he's saying, but, but this, is an in, this is innocence right here. And so he's, he doesn't have his baby there, but he's doing it, right, metaphorically saying, but she's innocent right, of all of this. At which point, it occurred to me to ask the question, but will she ever find safety in non-white arms? At which point he stopped rocking, right, turned red, right, and after what we talked, and he said, you know what's so phenomenal about that is that I only have one black friend in my entire life. So I'm arguing that this simple mundane act of shaking, moving one's little white baby is already setting up the very conditions for the very possibility of the white gaze being manifested in that body in a certain kind of way. So already, the, the word interpolation, right, it's not the word interpolate as in uh, to, like a little carrot to interpolate. It's a different word, interpolation, and it means to hail. So in other words, if I'm walking down the street and a police officer says, hey, you, and I turn around, Altasor says that that's the way in which one becomes a subject. Um, when a baby is born, let's say, uh, the doctor doesn't say, oh, look, it's a vagina, right? The doctor says, oh, look, it's a girl, right? And the, the, the statement, the utterance itself is a process of interpolation because in some sense by saying it's a girl, it is supersaturated with all kinds of assumptions, namely pink, dolls, cooking, giving away your name at some point, all of that's downloaded in it, right? Interesting example, there was a, a three-year-old white girl, there's a study done by Joe Fagan, she was at a, a daycare, and the, the teacher said, go and lie next to, let's say, just call her Jessica, black, a black girl. And the white girl says, three years old, she says, I don't want to. And they said, why? And she says, because she's a nigger. And they thought, you know, what? You know, what's going on here? They said, what, where'd you learn this? And she said, well, niggers stink. And I don't want to lie next to them. So for me, it's not as if somehow white people White, white parents sat her down and said, now listen, Gloria, niggers stink, okay? Let me hear you repeat it, right? They stink. Let's hear it. Come on, write it in a full sentence, right? It's not, that's not the way. It doesn't work top down in that very thematic way. Rather, racism is far more quotidian, is far more um, mundane, it's far more non-spectacular. It happens precisely in the arms of one's parents, Right? Let me tell you how crazy this notion is. John Warren, uh, who's dead now, is a fabulous uh, thinker in terms of critical whiteness studies. And I just have to pick someone, if you don't mind me randomly picking on somebody. Do you mind me picking on you? Um, yes. Do you identify as white? Yes. Uh, are your both parents white? They are. Uh, grandparents? Yes. Okay. So this is what Warren says, which is absolutely radical. It's a radical way of us thinking about racism. Now, I don't want you to just take on this, but I want to use an example. So he says, look, when I put my hand next to a dark hand, I notice a difference. My hand is dark, that hand is white. But then he says, well, but race is not just about biology. It's not just my lack of melanin. I have to now trace out the social historical dimensions that impact, and I'm going to say it for you, that impact precisely your body. So the argument is that at some point, your parents, this is the argument, would have come up against anti-miscegenation laws. Everybody know what, what anti-miscegenation laws are? Right? It's a felony if you were to date someone outside of your race. So he would argue that whites in this room, who have white parents, who have white grandparents, are in fact in their embodiment, not simply the manifestation of something like 
Cupid's arrow, right? It's not as if Cupid shoots his arrow and it hit your mother's, you know, heart and they fell in love. No, that arrow was already predetermined and conditioned and constituted in a certain kind of way, such that what it means to love a body, what it means to desire a body, is already supersaturated with racism. That's the claim. Now, I'm not saying that your parents were racist. Well, maybe I am, but let's say that I'm not. Right? I am saying for John Warren that the implications are there for why it is that certain bodies are white. Why is it? Well, we know the history. It was about white bodies being protected, being pure. It was about white men playing the role of white savior figures and controlling white women's reproductive systems, right? And then along with the myth of the black male rapist, right? So what's interesting about this then is that to even be, to begin to understand how whiteness and white racism operate, one has to ask the question, what does it mean for me at this, in this white space to move through space without asking myself, what the hell am I doing here? So my point is that if you're black and you're in this space and you kind of go, shit, like, I'm the only black, or I'm the only person of color, which happens at APA associations, right? We're only 1.1% 1, 1 .1 of the population. So every white philosopher is one African-American philosopher, right? So I'm often at the APA saying, shit, you know, I'm feeling alienated, right? Forlorn in this space. And my grad students, the white ones, will say, why? And then I'll say, that's precisely the problem. It's because you don't understand. It's because your identity isn't even challenged within that space. You don't even become self-alienated. That is precisely the buttressing of white supremacy. So if you walk in this space and you never think about your whiteness, that, for me, is an instance of white racism. So for me, white racism has a very low threshold. What does it mean to be white and racist? It means to do nothing. It's as simple as that. It doesn't mean to lynch a body. It doesn't mean to call me a nigger. It just means to live and reside in this space right now without ever questioning your whiteness or, being, or finding yourself in crisis or losing your way. These are terms that I use throughout the talk. Losing your way. And by losing your way, I really mean that. What does it mean for you to be white in this space and to lose your way? Meaning to say, where the hell am I? But you always know where you are, because you're white, right? That's part of the logic of whiteness, is to know where one is. Um. Um, I, I was really fascinated by what And I hope you don't mind my using you as no, an example. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, the, the stories of your students um, mm. initially in class, thinking that they live in a post-racial world, yeah. I was just reflecting. Um, shopping for vegetables yesterday at Trader Joe's and they have a corporate playlist that goes on in the grocery store and the song Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones is on their playlist mm. and it occurred to me when listening to that song which is an explicit rape I mean mm. it's a story about a white slave owners raping mm. black women I mean, it's just it could, could not be more explicit mm. um, it made me think of what it's like to walk what it must be like for a black woman to walk through a store and have us in the background and, and have the, the body in, in, inscribed or the narrative reinforced yes. in this way but that people are absolutely deaf to. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you about those forms Good. of background narration that occur in our daily lives that, that we don't seem to be able to hear or see. Well, that's right. I mean, well, there they are, right? I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, I'll just take the APA again, right? It's, it's precisely the normative space 
right? When the white woman's in the elevator alone, space is not racialized. Space is not marked as racialized. When the black body shows up, the space becomes race. Or when the non-white body, right, the yellow body, red body, you call it what you like, shows up, the space is raced, right? So there's a way in which what I want to do is be, make the background to the, into the foreground, right? And the question becomes, how much of that can you do, right? But because I argue that whiteness is a side of opacity, which means if you know anything about Descartes, you know that he believed pretty much that the mind was, uh, except for at least one philosopher I know, has argued that Descartes had some concept of the unconscious. Uh, for the most part, if you want to know, right, if Descartes, you want, he uses insight, and consciousness is transparent to itself, right? But my argument is that we aren't transparent to ourselves, and whites, in terms of a specific kind of historical trajectory, aren't uh, transparent to themselves in terms of their own whiteness, right? So at the end of the day, I argue that what whites need, then, is the gift of black consciousness. I think that I would argue that men, I mean, are there any sexist guys in the audience, <laughs> with the exception of me? Right? Well, there's a few that didn't raise their hand. Okay, you guys, you guys got something to teach us, right? You guys don't talk about women's asses and stuff? You don't do that? You don't objectify them? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> So the gift of the white gaze, or the gift in this case of the black gaze, which means that whites have to undergo a process of what I call white double consciousness, to begin to see themselves through the eyes of those who are black or people of color, right? So I think that background is there always operating. So for me, the philosophical, not just the philosophical, but the deeply psychological and phenomenological challenge is, look, if white racism was like vomiting, I hate to give that example, right? Let's say it was like vomiting. Let's say you vomit on Monday, vomited on Monday, right, all day long, right? My argument is that you still have the poison in you. Even if you vomit all week long, you can't vomit enough of it up. So my argument is that whiteness is all the way down. So the best that you can do, in my mind, the way I theorize this, is that whites, the best that you can be at the end of this talk, you can be an anti-racist racist. So the anti-racist part there is, but racist. So for me, I can only become, I argue, an anti-sexist sexist. Because I partly do away with a place called arrival. Right? So for me, there is no place called arrival for white people. There is no place that where you will become as a noun, this static state of called anti-whiteness, right? I don't know what that looks like, right? Because it will take a lifetime and even more to undo the inculcation of white supremacy and white norms, white assumptions, white mythos, white epistemology, and ways of looking at the world and getting the word wrong, right? It would take an entire lifetime. I'll tell you, Richard, do you guys remember um, um, Michael Richards Kramer? You remember that, sign, that uh, Laugh Factory thing? So for those who, has someone, is there someone who has not seen that? So if you have not, okay, some who have not seen it. Well, there were some black guys who were talking. And Michael Richards there, before his performance, he says something like this. I, I don't have it verbatim, but he says, shut up. I'm not going to say it exactly what he said, but he said, 50 years ago, we'd have you upside down with a fucking fork up your ass. You can talk now, motherfucker. Throw his ass out. Then he goes, he's a nigger. Look, a nigger. A nigger. A nigger. Look, a nigger. I kid you not. A nigger. Right? So with the exception of the time where he goes, nigga, it's at least seven times. Right? Later, and it was crazy, so look it up. Seinfeld, 
uh, not Seinfeld, uh, Michael Richards' uh, breakdown, or whatever you want to call it, right? So later, Seinfeld goes on Dave Letterman and allows Seinfeld to come over to apologize. And apparently, he also apologized to Jeff, Jesse Jackson, which I can't, I don't know what the hell that meant, right? <laughs> but that somehow, because he apologized to Jesse Jackson, I should forgive him too. Bullshit, right? Makes no sense at all. But here's what he says. He says, the insane thing is that I'm not a racist. And you're thinking, maybe 10 times? <laughs> if he had said nigger maybe 10 times, right, he qualifies. But then he says something for which he lacks, since I'm in this space, I'll call it, since he, he lacks the narrative. He lacks the narrative competence to make sense of what he says. He says, the insane thing is that I'm not a racist, but, and he says, it comes out. It flows through me. It fires out of me. But he doesn't have the language to then take that and go, holy shit, right? There's aspects of my own identity that I don't recognize. So what I want white people to do is to say, I thought I knew me, when in fact I don't. So there's a certain kind of epistemic humility that whites have to take on, a certain kind of vulnerability to even begin to, to understand how your identity is causing some other body a problem. Right? Remember, remember it was Carl Jaspers who said that those Germans under the, under the Holocaust are guilty precisely because they're alive. Right? That's a hell of a burden to carry, right? And my argument is that <laughs> it's not that whites are racist in the sense that, I use the work of uh, Iris Marion Young, who makes a distinction between um, a connection model of responsibility versus um, what she calls, if anybody knows the term, but a, let's call it a, um, uh, where, the, where, the, where the cause is a, a, a site of... of um, um, oh, what does she call it? I don't want to say prosecution, but it's, it's where the individual is the, the, the cause. Let's call it the cause of it in some immediate sense, right? And so she wants to say that, look, there are those who are guilty because they caused X. So the SS were guilty of killing Jews, right? But in some sense, the Germans, right, they were, yet, they were responsible in some sense, right? So the argument here is that what we need to do is move beyond the discourse of the word that I can't think of at the moment um, and thinking about the, the perpetrator model, that's it. To think about the white as the perpetrator, where you are the cause, but where you are responsible precisely through being a part of a social context and a network, inevitably where your body and the meaning of your body has implications for other bodies. So my argument is that your body moving through space and sitting in this space, right, will leave this space, because after all, we have to leave. But when my body leaves, I become a potential Trayvon Martin. When your white body leaves, you get to walk through the world with effortless grace. So while we've entered into this space, that's why I argue against this notion of hope, right? Because it's easy for white people to be hopeful. In fact, at the end of these talks, generally a white person will raise their hand, and you kind of go, yeah, and they're very exciting. And they'll say, how we fix it, right? But there are ways in which, as Sarah Ahmed makes clear, that when whites say, how do we fix it? There's a way in which they psychologically distance themselves from the gravity, the gravitas of precisely the problem that they have not come to terms with. Because it's easy to say, how can we fix it, without tarrying or dwelling or lingering in the space of that racism, right? So that when you leave with hope, then, I'm arguing that counterproduces what I'm after, which is something far more weightier existentially, right? So to leave with no hope 
is not to say that I want you to leave hopelessly, right? Or hopelessly, yeah, that's it. But rather to leave with a level of the existential gravitas of the, of the problem of your own whiteness and what that means in terms of how your body could be a site of terror. I mean, look, Bell Hooks said when she thinks about whiteness growing up where she grew up, she thinks about terror. Generally, when we think about terror, it's a contemporary notion. But black bodies have suffered and bodies of color have been terrorized since the founding of this country, right? But when you think about your whiteness, and I want you to do this later tonight. When, later tonight, I want you to go home, or wherever you go, and I want you to get naked, alone, um, and look at yourself in the mirror, and ask yourself, what is so fucking important about being white? Why is my white body so special? And then, of course, if you come up with an answer, email me. <laughs> I'll give you freedom to email me that the response to that answer. But I suspect that it's a deeply problematic question and that you're not asking yourself that question, particularly in the nude. Uh, one more question. Or maybe, maybe two more, if possible. Yeah. Sure. Here, here. So you, I remember you were talking about being in the world lightly, and you talked a lot about tearing in this space where crisis is engendered for mm. white folks. And so Dr. Galva is one of my professors, and he has this at the bedside now. So we're, we're learning to maybe one day be clinicians, and which is exciting and terrifying. But I, I worry in this world where there are black and white bodies about my white colleagues who will have black patients. What do they do? Because I guarantee you, if you pulled all 160 some odd first year medical students in Columbia and said, how many of you are racist? We'd get like one or two that would say yes, something like that. But even if you got everybody to say this, how do you, when you walk into the room and there is a black body before you, as a white person, as a medical student, a physician, a surgeon, what have you, how do you deliver excellent care? How do you bear witness to your whiteness and their blackness and everything else? How do you feel? Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful question. Um, and the weirdest thing is, uh, while, while I don't look at that work directly, somehow, because I do the work that I do, I'm often asked questions like that. And somehow my work has become pertinent to critical pedagogy as well. Um, uh, by the way, for those, just for the sake of the, 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 the conceptual part, the idea was the liability model. I knew it'd come to me. Iris Marion Young. It's the liability model versus the um, connection model of responsibility. Right? So she critiques the liability model over the connection model. But yet whites are still responsible. Um, I, I tell you, let me, let me try to answer it by, by going around this way. I think that whites who will eventually become doctors or clinicians or what have you, right, who will operate under whiteness as a transcendental norm, and who will, as I'm arguing, have uh, embedded within them whiteness as the site of opacity. I'm then arguing that it's not possible for them not to have this. Right? So the question then becomes one of how much can you become aware? Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not, will I walk in this room and not be a racist? Because again, that would be using the discourse of arrival. Rather, it's how do I walk into this room vis-a-vis -vis this body of color while at the same time allowing myself to be wounded in the presence of that body. Right? Now, that might sound philosophically grandiose, right? But it's in incredibly beautiful and quite wonderful, right? In my classes, this is what I do. So I think that those who are to be doctors, those white folk, 
um, need to become to live lives in crisis. Again, I want to know what that looks like. I want to see a white person in, let's say, a class like yours break the fuck down. Now, and I don't mean just crying because that's easy. I've had many like in the audio people crying at the end. Like remember this white girl was saying, "Oh my God, he's calling me a racist," and and her white. Her white professors hugged her and said, well, you know, he's just talking about systems, honey. He's not really talking about you. It's about systems. It was like, can you believe this, right? But So I, you know, I think that this kind of parisia has to happen within the context of classrooms where whites are becoming doctors or caretakers, right? They need to understand to come to terms with their own racism and to be afraid of what that looks like, to be haunted by that. What Levinas says when he says to become the insomniac. How many whites in this room lose sleep over their own whiteness? I'm not asking you to volunteer to raise your hand, but I mean, how many of you do? How many of you take your whiteness that seriously? Because I take my blackness very seriously. And I take my son's blackness very seriously. So when they try to live in the world as if they are human only, like neutral subjects, neoliberal subjects, not so. You're black first and foremost. And I see that as a gift of saving their lives so that they don't quickly move, right? A dual white thing. Oh, let me show you my ID, right? That's a white move, right? Um, So in my classrooms, I create spaces, and it happens over over the course of a semester. And I'll just give you an example and try to answer your question by way of this example. So by the time we had created moments of unsuturing, and by unsuturing, I really mean that, because generally when people are bleeding, it's, it's a kind of metaphor that makes you kind of go, oh my God, does he really mean that? Well, metaphorically, but yet literally, I can theorize that if you want me to go into detail. But when someone gets a cut, it's like, okay, oh, you got to sew that up. Right? My argument is that I want to see white bodies unsutured. Not literally cut, but if you define the term body apart from matter, this is a, some interesting stuff, right? New stuff. Then your body as materiality is larger than your body in that space, right? As skin, right? You're part of a social integument. So my argument is that unsuturing takes place at the ways, in the ways in which your body is interpolated, hailed, called forth, supported by institutions, discursive regimes that support that body and make that body feel good in the spaces that it's in. So I'm arguing that you have to unsuture those, cut the ties that bind, and help to buttress the idea of your identity as white. Ruth Frankenberg, who died uh, a while ago, she said that when we think about whiteness, white people say this. What does it mean to be white? It means to say, I'm not that. It's like, well, okay, what does that mean, right? Well, I'm not that. But that means that whiteness is predicated on a negation. But the question becomes, what is whiteness? brings us right back to it. And I want to ask the question, is whiteness fundamentally empty? Is it fundamentally an alienated existence? Is it fundamentally a site of emptiness and a site of being alone, despite the fact that you might not feel that way, right? Uh, David Rodinger says that whiteness is not just a site of fear, rather a site of the, the false and the oppressive. He says it's nothing but false and oppressive. So I want white people to think about what that could possibly mean. So in this classroom, a white student, one female, one male, two of them, came forward, and they would have never done this. And so this is answering your question. So a white female student said, and she was trembling, you could hear her voice, 
she was turning red. But we had created such a wonderful space. So these are the spaces that I think have to take place. So these are preconditions for those whites who will eventually become doctors. Right? They have to be exposed. They have to be wounded. They have to be vulnerable. They have to be able and willing to undergo a form of suturing. Right? To begin to say, I don't know me. And to really feel what that's like, affectively. Not just epistemologically. Because it's easy for whites just to say, yeah, sure, I got it. I got privilege. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, but do you understand that that privilege has a meaning for other black bodies existentially? Whether they remain alive or not? Right? And if that's what's at stake at the end of the day, then your life, your body means life. My black body and other black bodies and bodies of color within this space are sites of death. We just don't know it yet. So it's those who argue that blackness is a site of the postmortem. When a black body dies, it's the site of the postmortem. It's to die after being dead, right? So I'm biding my time. What could that mean? What does that mean to say that I'm biding my time? Can you imagine being in a body like that? That I'm just waiting to be killed? So this white girl says she was walking with her white boyfriend, and they were walking in front of a black girl, and her white boyfriend turns to her and says, now why don't you have an ass like that? At which point, the white girl turns to her white boyfriend and says, well, at least I've got real hair. I just drink that in a bit, right? So here's a case where the black female body got objectified in terms of her derriere, right? Think about Sarah Bartman and steatopigia, right? That term. Um, so she gets objectified by the white woman, by the white guy, and at the same time gets reduced to this kind of nappy-headedness, right? Where the female white aesthetic takes over, right? White guy says... He was walking, you know, minding his own business, happens to be gay. These black guys saw him, and they said, they called him a faggot. So you're such a faggot, they just called him over and over again, right? And he talked about it, and he said, you know, when they called me a faggot, I just thought to myself, he said, I might be a faggot, but at least I ain't black. You know? So it was this wonderful moment where you're thinking, shit, right? It's like, okay, so blackness is below being a faggot, Right? And I don't use the term faggot, but it's like, look at that construction. Right? And what's interesting about it is what then do we make of the black faggot? Right? Using that language in scare quotes, right? And, and, and what's interesting is that at a talk, a black guy was very eager, a guy who's black and gay, was eager to say to me, look, you know what's weird? When I want to go with, to be around those who are like me, gay, I go to a gay bar. And I, saw, I thought, that makes sense. But he says when he goes to an interracial gay bar, guess what happens? The white guys come for him. So even where he's trying to establish a form of intersubjectivity and mutual solidarity and identity, he becomes the black dick. So it's like shit, right? It's operating even within this space, right? So what am I saying, right? And apparently there was a study done. I can't remember the exact details, but it was something like this where a group of in-training doctors were, uh, you guys may know the study better than I do, where they were asked to diagnose men of a certain age, certain weight, had all these other characteristics were the same. The only difference is that some of them were black and some of them were white. Turns out that um, the white doctors recommended for the white patients presenting the same symptoms clot-busting drugs because apparently they thought of these bodies as coming in with signs of a heart attack. Mm. 
Afterward, they had them take the implicit uh, bias test. Turns out that those whites who in fact made the recommendation showed pro-white biases. So here's a case where I come in presenting with a potential heart attack or some symptoms. They don't make the recommendation. I die. But so do the black doctors too. Well, there you go. And see, so, so here's, and so do the black doctors too. Now, what does that mean for white people? I, I, I got that, but I have to qualify it. It doesn't mean that when white people hear that, they say, you see, we're all just a bit racist, right? No. Black people are victims of the internalization of that racism in ways that are fundamentally different from the ways in which white people perpetuate white racism. Just as women who objectify their own bodies, and I know them, right? I'm not going to say that they're to blame for the ways in which they objectify their own bodies. I'm going to argue that they're part of a white gaze, which, which white male gaze, or sorry, I should say gay male gaze that they have internalized and therefore do danger and violence to their own bodies, right? So I think that what has to happen is we have to have spaces like this, spaces where white people come to terms with what it means for them to hear a black body, where to orally hear a black body and to have prejudices against what they hear, what it means to smell a black body. It's a weird stuff that happens, right? when bodies come together that are white and black? What does it mean that whiteness is not just, again, ideological, but an entire sensorial field? If that's the case, then, there's no part of the, black, the white body or white modes of being that aren't impacted by whiteness. And therefore, what do you expect? When the white person goes in, the black body or the, the doctor, already the narrative, the meta-narrative of whiteness is going to start operating in some form. Some form of exclusion, some form of belittlement, some form of misrecognition, some form of distortion. And often black people will see this. Right? But stats have it that black people don't like to talk about race. So this whole idea that black people play a race card is just absolute nonsense. Black people don't like talking about racism because they're often not believed. So just stop talking about it. So I'd love to see what that looks like in a classroom that you take, that, or that you're taking, for these to-be clinicians, white, to undergo moments of crisis, and to carry the weight out of that classroom that someday they will come face-to-face -face with a client who happens to be black, and what that will mean for them. And to believe that they can enter into that space and see that body as human, without all of that shit that's operating at the level of the unconscious, you know, to believe that, it seems to me, is to buy into a myth that's already setting up the black body as a problem body and as a site of danger, right? Yeah. Let's take one final question. Um, thank you, Professor Yancey. Um, I was uh, trying to figure out if I was going to come today, mm. and I'm really glad I did because you gave um, <coughs> words to my narrative, to my life, to mm. my walking through, mm. um, as somebody who's going to be 46 years old at the end of this month. And, Congratulations. Um, thank you, a graduate student here at the School of Nursing. I get to go between the two campuses. I just want to say to you, please don't leave because I want to give you my business card. Um, <laughs> my clinical is down at St. Luke's, and, uh, which is behind Morningside Campus. And Morningside Campus it has a very different feel than up here at the medical center, where I used to work 15 years ago. Up here, I am very aware of my black body. Mm. If my ID is not clearly showing, I'm going to get stopped. 
And I notice white students do the same thing, and oftentimes the black and Latino security guards ask them, please let me see your security guard, I mean, your, your, your ID card, and they keep walking because they can. Mm, good, I cannot. Good. good. Okay? Yeah, sure. When I'm down at 116th Street, I'm thinking, like I'm in South Africa, and I gotta make sure I got my ID card so everybody can see it. But I notice people don't walk around 116th Street campus like that. They don't. And so I had to kind of take it down a few notches. Okay, nobody's gonna stop me here. I can cut across campus. It's okay here, but when I go to the medical center, I better make sure my ID is clearly displayed. And um, somebody in front asked about the, um, the, the projection of the white narrative, the white body. And, and the way that I would, I would say it is, um, for those of us, us black people of a certain age, we were told, you know, you need to dress a certain way so that people don't perceive you mm. of being this way. But the, it doesn't really matter what we wear because when I went into my um, preceptor's office today and I'm wearing a Calvin Klein top and a bottom and I'm wearing the hospital ID, the person in the room that she was talking to thought I was a client mm. because they saw a black body. Sure, sure, excellent. Well, thank you for that. So yeah. I just want to thank you for, thank you. again, just Speaking my existence. Oh, that's a, I like that. That's a wonderful expression. Speaking my existence. Boy, you got to write that down. I might steal that and use it as. <laughs> um, but but the fact that that it's said right, speaking my existence, and since we're here in that space, it says something about shared narrativity, right? And we are, I believe, we are by by nature, and I say ontologically, I think we are Homo narrans. Uh, if you guys have heard of the term Homo narrans, we are storytellers. We are homo significans, we are symbol users, but there's a passive and there's an active dimension to homo narrans and homo significans, just as we are homo historicus, deeply historical. But I, so I like this idea of speaking one's existence and the power to bear witness. This is what Cornell West talks about a lot, but the power to bear witness to someone else's pain. And I would hope that those who are white would relate to that or juxtapose their own experiences with that, uh, that narrative that was just told. Because, again, the question becomes, when are you ever aware of your whiteness? Right? And by the way, being aware of your whiteness in a predominantly black space or Latino space or Asian space, again, is not the same as being aware of one's, own, one's blackness or Latinoness or Asianness within white spaces. Because you still carry whiteness. Right? You still carry the power. You still carry the privilege. Right? Uh, and the dress thing is very interesting. There were, there were th four critical race theorists who were on an elevator. They do critical race theory, black women. Who, and I was going to bring that in when I was talking about the elevator example. Twice this happened at a conference. They were on an elevator. A white woman saw them on the elevator and refused to get on. Same day, different time, on the elevator, a white woman gets on. In this space, the elevator is described as very capacious, right? very spacious. The white woman refuses to get on, at which point one of the black women says, you know, I always thought that you know, it was about being black and male. But it's not about being black and male. Well, it's about that. But it's also about being black that my white, quote-unquote, sisters don't understand, right? And so I like this idea within the context of what you just said in terms of, of blending questions of space, questions of identity, questions of moving uh, with effortless grace or not being able to move with effortless grace, um, in this idea of expanding our narratives in this way in which you're aware of your body, so I think we need to force whites to be far more aware of their own bodies. But you can't, as a white person, become more aware of your body 
when America, or North America, tells you that you're an individual. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive because we want to say we are individuals, but there's a certain kind of vicious, nasty neoliberalism that says you're disconnected from me. And that's my point about the connection model of responsibility. What if your body, what if your life is predicated on my death? Drink that in, right? It seems to me that you'd lose some sleep. I mean, I've been losing a lot of sleep about the ways in which I am a sexist, the ways in which I objectify women's bodies. I mean, I said that in the New York Times piece. I was trying to be as vulnerable as I could be because philosophers are not vulnerable. Well, not all of them. Well, most of them aren't, right? Uh, we don't do that shit, right? Because we're thinkers, right? We think and we refute arguments, right? We're rational subjects. But here it was, me, like, revealing myself, you know? Girls gone wild. Shit. Like, whoa, right? Anaconda. Damn. Like, what do I make of that? And every time I turn on my computer, there's Kim Kardashian's ass, right? It's like, always there. It's like... Do you look at it or don't you? Do you look at it? Like, oh shit, oh, gotta look at it. Gotta look at it. Well, that day I became what, what, what feminists refer to as the fucker. The distinction between the fucky and the fucker. Right? Men are the fuckers. Women are the fuckies. But precisely because society, in terms of its images, always positions you all that way. Look at any television program and watch the way your bodies are represented. They're the fuckies. Whether they're bending over leaning over just a little bit to see cleavage, right? And I have to ask myself every day, do I want to be a fucker today? So every day of my life, I ask that question. Do I want to be a fucker? And I have to say, no. I refuse to be a fucker. So my question is, what does it become, what does it mean to then say that I refuse to cooperate with whiteness? Right? My guess is that we were really serious we probably shut things down tomorrow. In other words, the world would not look like, or maybe let's say not the world, but this world, this relatively small world that you guys inhabit, that you traverse, would look fundamentally different if you were really serious about challenging whiteness. Dr. Nancy, I want to thank you for challenging us.